Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we explore the work of authors, artists, and thinkers, and this week, twice. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. Today is part two of a lecture that was delivered here last month by Jelani Cobb called The Half-Life of Freedom. Part one was called The Media and Alternative Facts, and part two, the one you're listening to now, is The Demagogues of American History. I probably don't have to tell you why that subject might be relevant to today. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, please stop what you're doing, go download it, listen, and then come back to me here. Okay, you did it? Back? Good. All right, let's move on. This part of Dr. Cobb's talk has on display a rogues gallery of American demagogues, some who you'll be familiar with, others whom you probably won't. They're all distinctly American characters whose stories in and of themselves are pretty gripping. But what's more fascinating is how Cobb shows the ways in which the preoccupations and proclamations of demagogues really haven't changed all that much over time. So let's get to it. Here, once again, a fascinating, incisive talk by Jelani Cobb. So you came back. Um, <clears throat> we live in interesting times. I always say that, you know, uh, to my students, we live in interesting times. But it's hard to keep track. Uh, you know, they become more and more interesting by the moment. Uh, and, you know, as I was coming out of the subway, I came upstairs and uh, looked at my phone. I got the notification that uh, Trump had fired Comey. Um, and so we now have a circumstance in which uh, a president has fired a FBI director while under active investigation by that FBI director. Uh, and so um, there are lots of relevant uh, analogies. People have kind of pointed to Watergate and uh, Archibald Cox. And uh, there's a whole array of, um, I guess, analogies that we could make about this. But uh, it's just a very strange moment outside of the framework of understanding uh, I think the particular kind of psychology uh, and <clears throat> the particular kind of political inclinations uh, of the individual who occupies the White House right now. Uh, and so just when I conceived of this, um, I'll tell you, it was uh, kind of in a moment of you know shock and dismay uh, in November, November, it may have been November 9th by then, it was after midnight, uh, and I was in North Carolina writing about, I was there to write about the uh, gubernatorial election and uh, as well as the presidential election and see what was going on there. And uh, seeing what the country was doing, uh, I kept, you know, having this thought, uh, they have turned to a man whom they don't fully understand, uh, that people have sought out uh, the uh, leadership and guidance of someone whose inclinations and priorities uh, and proclivities are different from perhaps what they have understood. Because there have been figures like Donald Trump in American history previously, uh, but they have been, I think, uh, I've talked about it as a kind of uh, <clears throat> political immune response that has uh, kept them quarantined in particular segments. Doesn't mean they didn't do damage, that they couldn't do, uh, they couldn't lead movements that had particular impacts, uh, you know, deleterious impacts uh, on, especially on vulnerable communities. Uh, but it does mean that these uh, individuals were generally kept from uh, achieving the highest level of executive authority, as we've seen here. And I think there's some particular dynamics that go into that. Uh, but just as very quickly, there's been a, a interesting point, you know, about 
you know, the political powers of the presidency are vast, uh, but they do not extend to the powers of resurrection, uh, you know, kind of actual resurrection, uh, <laughs> which has been notable uh, because in, in the course of his uh, fledgling presidency, Trump has uh, resurrected Frederick Douglass, um, <laughs> and you know who I quite frankly would not mind seeing come back. <clears throat> Though I think it might be a bit much to subject him to these circumstances, <laughs> come back and say 1895, and you know you all still haven't gotten it right. Um, and uh, resurrected uh, Luciano Pavarotti, uh, and then uh, he didn't quite resurrect Andrew Jackson, but he you know, extended his life by <laughs> 15 or 16 years, um, which I, I mean, think is generous enough um, considering the circumstances. Uh, but what was notable to me was that even after, at the, the very outset uh, of his presidency, when he uh, first, when it seemed that this electoral uh, plurality was going to kind of go in his favor, uh, there were people on the right, and particularly, I guess, on the alt-right, who began making this comparison between him and Andrew Jackson. Uh, and it was a superficial analogy, a superficial comparison. It held up in a kind of superficial way, both as uh, political outsiders who had taken on the establishment. Uh, Andrew Jackson famously, in 1824, uh, denounced uh, what he saw as he, what he called the corrupt bargain election, where there was not an electoral majority, majority in the electoral college. And uh, he, uh, having not gained the majority, uh, denounced the bargain uh, which Henry Clay uh, brokered, uh, which kept him out of the presidency. And in 1828, he, as an insurgent candidate, uh, led, to, led his uh, following to the presidency. And people thought of this as a kind of uh, triumph of the everyday man. Uh, and like Trump, his form of populism was directed at the everyday uh, working white man. Like Trump, Andrew Jackson was a man of considerable means. Uh, unlike Trump, uh, he acquired those means himself. Uh, he was a self-made individual to the extent that someone could be called self-made. Uh, Jackson, as his first investment, purchased a black woman uh, as a slave. Uh, and this was the first thing that he did as he set out you know, on his path to uh, actually achieving uh, you know, what he wanted in life. Uh, and so Jackson's contempt for the elites uh, was not a kind of rhetorical device, unlike with Donald Trump. Uh, and so Jackson uh, was opposed to and... Uh, refused the uh, extension of the second uh, national bank uh, as opposed to the kind of fealty that Donald Trump has paid uh, to banks and bankers. Uh, and we could go on and on, on, on and on and on. Uh, the one thing that I thought that was probably the most accurate comparison, or rather the two things I thought were the most accurate uh, lines of comparison were first, that Jackson had a healthy dose of contempt for uh, institutions, particularly other governmental institutions. Uh, famously, in the Cherokee versus Georgia uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, which Jackson disagreed with, he simply said, as you know, executive, uh, the Supreme Court has made a decision, let's see them try to enforce it, um, which was, you know, disparaging the Supreme Court's uh, ultimate authority over law uh, in the country. Uh, and beyond that, you know, the particular politics of race. And so one of the things that Trump said I thought was 
weak, uh, displayed a kind of weak grasp of history of the, the kind of many points we could say was that somehow Andrew Jackson would have prevented the Civil War from occurring. Uh, and I mean, no, uh, versus <laughs> no. Um, and there are lots of lots of reasons that we could talk about uh, for this. But quite simply, uh, on the most basic level, there could have, could have been no kind of uh, amelioration of the national uh, divide over the issue of slavery because during Jackson's tenure, uh, the Democratic Party prevented there from even being any discussion of slavery in Congress. Uh, the famous gag order uh, that they refused to allow petitions on the issue of slavery to even be discussed. Uh, and so, no, this wasn't something that was possible. Uh, and in addition, uh, his kind of idea of promoting the everyday white man uh, over uh, black people over the indigenous populations and so on, uh, perhaps there's a degree of resonance there. And so the figures with whom I think Donald Trump shares more of a genealogical tie, more of a familial resemblance, are some of the more demagogic figures in American history. And when I say demagogic, uh, I mean that and there are lots of ways we could define that. But I mean that uh, most simply as individuals who play upon the passions uh, of the public, particularly the prejudices and fears of the public in attempts to gain political power. And there are all sorts of demagogues, uh, you know, that we could talk about, you know, in, in the country, uh, you know, who lead various movements for various causes. Uh, you could, some people might say that, uh, that Alex Jones fell in that category or, uh, you know, lots of people who we see who were who are in the category of cranks and aspiring, aspirational demagogues, and so on. But uh, I'm mostly concerned with uh, the the lineage of individuals who held political power uh, and or used mass media in ways that seem uh, resonant and familiar. And so, at the very outset of this country, there are all these debates. You go back to the Federalist Papers, there are all these debates about, you know, whether or not a republic can actually exist. Uh, and, you know, there's this famous concern that Madison has about whether democracy can exist in a large society. That thinking that republics have to be very small, you have to be very close to the centers of power, very close to the centers of politics. If not, if people begin uh, to get too distant, what we'd say now is out of touch uh, with the concerns and the needs of the everyday person, then democracy can't work. But he does say that there is one benefit to having a large and diverse society, which is to say that people who are uh, demagogic, people who are uh, prone to use or manipulate the public in ways that are unhealthy for democracy, will have a very difficult time getting a foothold in a diverse society. The idea is that maybe this will fly in Virginia, but it won't fly in Massachusetts. Or maybe you can gain a foothold in the South, but you cannot gain a foothold uh, in the North and in the West. And that it would become very difficult for you to um, uh, seize political power or, or to move the country in a way that is... Uh, uh, deleterious to our national interests. And this is the benefit of having a very large society. 
And so over time, we have seen uh, evolutions and developments that have made this a little bit more complicated, uh, which was interesting. I saw that uh, in the Times, actually, this was pointed out during the course of the election, which is saying that Madison uh, really uh, thought that this was a bulwark, but he could not have conceived in his time of mass media, the ability to spread your message across a platform of millions, tens of millions of people simultaneously, uh, and to gain a gathering, a following that is not confined by geographic difference uh, and not confined by the dynamics of diversity that might otherwise be a bulwark in democracy. So when we first begin to see this, one of the first instances in which we see this uh, is you know the rise of demagogic figures, demagogic populists. Oh, just as a very quick point, there's another kind of uh, uh, housekeeping point here. Uh, earlier this morning, I got into a minor Twitter debate, um, which I'm always doing. It's like, uh, but this wasn't bad actually. But it, but it, uh, but John Legend, um, uh, the musician, tweeted that he had an issue with people referring to uh, politicians as populists as opposed to white supremacists, which is you know, what they were. And the historian part of me kicked in, or saying, he was like, he thinks that this is a euphemism. I was like, well, you know, if you know the history of populism, it's really pretty accurate uh, that populism in America has been deeply steeped in white supremacy. Uh, and it's only because the term has moved away from its earliest implications that we could say that someone is euphemizing a white supremacist by calling them a populist. Uh, and so when we look at the, the rise of the People's Party uh, or the Populist Party in the late 19th century, which is a movement which responds to, then as now, uh, people would say it responds to the aggregation of a great deal of power and a great deal of wealth in the hands of a small number of people, uh, the influence that the powerful and wealthy have uh, on the rules and dictates of the economy, the ways in which uh, everyday individuals, in this case particularly farmers, wind up on the short end of this bargain and the mechanisms that they need in order to address their interests. Uh, and interestingly enough, the early populist party was interracial in its inclinations, uh, that people would organize black farmers, poor black farmers, and poor white farmers. And this is in the 1880s, 1890s. But as time went on, uh, it became increasingly apparent that this kind of interracial cooperation was untenable was unworkable in the long term. Uh, and this is most closely seen in the career of Tom Watson, uh, who was a, a figure closely associated with the Populist Party uh, and a figure in Georgia politics. And so Watson began his career uh, advocating for the rights of Black people, disparaging lynching and uh, disparaging the kind of racial violence that was commonplace in Georgia uh, and the rest of the South early on. Uh, but by 1896, he begins to make a hard turn uh, toward what they then called, uh, at the time, Negrophobia. Uh, and in, as a matter of fact, uh, his advocacy, he becomes a kind of stalwart, a kind of uh, identifiable figure associated with the cause of white supremacy. Now, he never left the cause of the average, average everyday working person. We'll notice that this is a theme. It is a connection uh, that when we talk about the demagogues that we'll like talk, discuss this, this evening, that they, at least in their own minds, 
rationalize their behavior in defense of people who have been uh, left out and who are on the short end of the deal. In 1906, as a matter of fact, uh, it is the pursuit of uh, Watson's blessings in the uh, 1906 Georgia uh, gubernatorial race uh, that leads to a kind of uh, competition uh, between the Democratic and Republican candidates about how much they will do to disenfranchise the black population of Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta was a kind of asterisk in the South. Uh, by the 1880s, certainly by the 1890s, black people in the South were scarcely voting anywhere. Uh, even though the 15th Amendment had enfranchised black men, they had effectively been lynched out of political contention. Uh, but Atlanta was an asterisk there um, for a few reasons that we could talk about later. Uh, and uh, one of the things that came up as a cause as in the, the course of this race was that uh, Negroes in the city of Atlanta should not be voting. Why are they voting? Why are they being treated differently than Negroes in other parts of Georgia, Negroes in other parts of the South? Uh, and it is Watson, after Watson visits Atlanta uh, and, and speaks, that a kind of frenzy of disfranchisement rhetoric uh, takes place and people begin uh, talking about a completely imaginary crime wave that the Negro population is responsible for. And this erupts into uh, the Atlanta race riot of 1906. Uh, in which there are lynchings, there are black people being hung uh, from lampposts downtown. There's never been a uh, accurate account of the number of people who die, uh, but it's estimated that it may be as many as 40. Uh, and this is all done as a kind of counterpoint to a man by the name of Henry Grady, who's thought of as the uh, the antithesis of Tom Watson's approach to the South. Henry Grady was a reformer. He thought that the, the state could move forward, that uh, if anyone's been ever been to Atlanta, you know, Grady Hospital is named after him. Uh, and he was a person who believed that there could be interracial cooperation. Uh, in kind of the wake of Watson's rhetoric, we see uh, Black people being lynched and their bodies being stacked at the base of the Henry Grady statue. Uh, and so... The interesting phenomenon uh, about, about um, Watson, uh, who holds, he's elected to the House of Representatives uh, toward the end of his life. He's elected to a Senate term that he does not uh, fill out. Uh, and he is uh, recognized as this you know, stalwart. Uh, but he is very sympathetic to the socialist cause <laughs> around the beginning of uh, World War One. Uh, he's associated with socialists who are saying we need to make fundamental reforms in the way that uh, people, the everyday person, is treated here. We can see that same theme uh, if we were to move a little bit forward. Uh, in 1926 in Detroit, uh, this is in the midst of a anti-Catholic, Catholic, um, anti-Catholic hysteria, which I mentioned in passing last week. Uh, they have been relatively uh, there have been a, a consistent uh, kind of theme of anti-Catholicism in American history. We don't really recognize it as such now because the kind of anti-Catholicism we might see uh, is the low-grade fever of uh, my denomination or my version of Christianity is better than yours. It doesn't really connect to uh, what we saw at the beginning of the 20th century or in the middle of the 19th century, where there are all sorts of kind of ideas about uh, what Catholicism is and how Catholics uh, practice infanticide, how Catholics practice ritual rape, how there are all these kinds of uh, hallucinatory ideas about what Catholicism is. Uh, and so in the context of this, in 1926, there's a cross-burned 
uh, on the lawn of a church, uh, the Shrine of the Little Flower in Detroit. And in response to this, uh, a priest there by the name of Charles Coughlin uh, is given access to the radio uh, in, in order to kind of, the hope is that he will familiarize the public with who Catholics are and what the Catholic faith is. Uh, and this is kind of what he does for the, for the first few years that he's on the air. Uh, but by the 1930s, 1931, he's particularly, he's taking a very political turn in, in his rhetoric. And his language is always framed in the sense of defending people the Depression has set in, defending people who are being exploited, uh, defending people from the avaricious capitalists who have ruined the economy, and the need for there to be accountability. Uh, and it's on the basis of this that he becomes a supporter of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, early on, uh, although he he uh, quickly turns on Roosevelt uh, and begins to say that Roosevelt is at first that he is taking half measures uh, in uh, in response to the capitalist exploiters of the common man uh, in America, uh, and then as time goes on, especially as we see the rise of fascism in Europe, uh, you see a distinct strain of anti-Semitism that uh, becomes prominent in Charles Coughlin's, what people call Father Coughlin, uh, becomes very prominent in Coughlin's rhetoric. Same dynamic that we saw previously. We're talking about a group that has been uh, treated poorly, that has been socially, has been a victim of social bias. Uh, and in response to this, you begin to see a, a virulent kind of anti-Semitism uh, that manifests itself. At the same time uh, of Coughlin's prominence, uh, there's another uh, individual, a Southern populist uh, who is uh, probably equally prominent, uh, although people have made the argument, and I think it probably is a, a reasonable argument, that in terms of statewide politics, this is the most powerful politician we've ever seen, uh, and that is Huey P. Long. Um, and Long, similarly, he is uh, addressing the concerns and the interests and the needs of a very poor population in Louisiana. And what's notable about this is, and I tell my students this, you know, uh, my students who tend to have a kind of liberal orientation in their politics. It's like, if you looked at people like, well, we don't, let's take Huey Long out of this because um, he's a particular character. Uh, but if you looked at uh, people like Ross Barnett um, or Orville Faubus um, or George Wallace, who we'll talk about a little bit more, uh, people who were these banner figures of opposing integration, opposing civil rights movements, uh, standing in the door of the University of Alabama, like the segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Those people, and I talk to my students about them and say, you know, if you removed race from your calculations, you would vote for every single one of them. These are people who believed in that the government had a role in uh helping people get a foothold in society. They believed in things like highway, net building a national highway. They believed in things like establishing public universities. Uh, they believed in a social safety net. Now, of course, they believed in these things exclusively for white people. Um, as a matter of fact, just kind of jumping ahead a little bit, uh, George Wallace, uh, when he uh, was a prominent Democrat, uh, his presidential campaign in 1964, uh, when it became apparent that uh, Barry Goldwater would win the nomination uh, for the Republican Party, uh, there was some talk about there being a cross-party alliance uh, and Wallace running as his vice president. 
And one of the reasons that that's, this wouldn't work was that Wallace did not want to gut Social Security. George Wallace. Uh, and so the idea now of kind of what Southern populism is and what Republican populism is uh, and the way that we talk about people and the idea that they operate against their own best interest, at least economically speaking, uh, that is a relatively modern phenomenon as it relates to these policies. Uh, and so Huey P. Long is no exception in this. Uh, you know, Long, who <laughs> gained uh, much of his support through patronage, fired most of the infrastructure of Louisiana when he came to power and brought in people who were indebted to him, uh, was able to manipulate uh, the um, the Democratic Party of Louisiana such that the Democrat, the state legislature were people who were either indebted to him for favors or too afraid to cross him. Uh, and he gained, uh, you know, quite a bit of authority on the basis of arguing on behalf or saying that he would represent the interests of poor whites in Louisiana. One of the notable things, the kind of um, comical things about, uh, anecdote about uh, Huey uh, Long is that he has a namesake, uh, a person who's named after him, uh, who is also famous uh, for very different reasons, uh, which is Huey P. Newton. So Huey P. Newton, uh, co-founder of the Black Panther Party, uh, was a native of Oakland, California. But like many Californians, during the Great Migration, his family had come from Louisiana. Uh, people in California uh, generally trace their roots back to Louisiana and Texas. Uh, and that points to a weird quirk uh, about about Long, which is that you did not see the sort of racial demagogic content that you would anticipate from most Southern populists. Uh, and so when uh, Long used the kind of rhetoric of race uh, and racism, uh, it tended to be cynical or it tended to be at least uh, half-hearted. There's an apocryphal tale about Huey Long and building a, a black hospital in Louisiana uh, where, uh, as the tale goes, and I don't know if this is true, but the fact that it was believed about him uh, said something about how he was perceived by African-Americans is that a group of African-Americans come to Huey Long and say, you know, we would like to get a hospital uh, built. And Long says, you know, I'll get you a hospital, but you won't like the way I do it. And what he does is um, a few weeks later uh, claims that he uh, visited a hospital uh, and saw a Negro who was injured in a car accident being tended to by a white nurse uh, and says, uh, you know, his outrage is such that like any white man of the South, he would never allow for such a thing to happen. And just to make sure this never happens again, I'm going to build those N-words, a hospital, clear on the other side of town. Um, so no white woman will ever have to care for an injured Negro. Uh, and so, you know, whether or not this actually holds up to scrutiny, it's kind of an interesting point about how people perceived Huey Long. Uh, and so, uh, he is, you know, notably he's assassinated in 1935. Uh, what he proposed, however, uh, is a really kind of interesting idea when we think about Louisiana and we think about Southern politics at the time, which is that he wanted to cap personal wealth at $100 million uh, and create a very sharply graduated uh, income tax scale. Uh, and he called it the Share Our Wealth Program. Uh, and what it would basically have been uh, would have been a kind of quasi-socialist sharing 
uh, and using this money, using this tax revenue to create a guaranteed minimum income uh, for uh, for poor families. Now, this is the type of thing that would go nowhere uh, in American politics right now. And it's interesting that this is associated. And, and, and his typical targets uh, were the corporations, uh, FDR, the figures who have too much power in the economy and so on. He kind of stirred up this class resentment uh, towards uh, you know, people who deem to have too much power in society. Uh, similarly to, to Charles Coughlin, one of the things that happened with Charles Coughlin uh, is that when World War II began, uh, it was easier to argue that he should not be on the radio, uh, as you saw in the kind of run up to this, we saw the template in World War One, in which the federal government did a great deal of suppression of uh, media outlets that were deemed to be uh, seditious or even uh, mildly critical of, of the war effort. Uh, under that same sort of banner, it was easier to get uh, Charles Coughlin off the radio. Uh, and so if we look at this, uh, we see that same sort of dynamic uh, emerge again in the 1950s, uh, when we see, and I will say one other quick point here. Um, one of the more notable things about this stream of populism is that it has not always required uh, a kind of racial animosity where you might have someone like Huey Long using these ideas cynically. You could also have a Henry Wallace who runs for president in 1948. Uh, and, you know, Wallace has the exact opposite approach to this. So it's saying that populism does not have to be in the progressive party ticket where he's openly advocating. He actually pushes uh, Truman to the left on issues of civil rights. He's openly advocating uh, for the interest of working people, op openly advocating uh, for the end of segregation, uh, openly advocating for uh, a pro-civil rights position, uh, and doing this as a populist. And so uh, the notable thing was, I guess, in in, uh, in some moments in 2016, I thought that Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign was uh, reminiscent of that 1948 Henry Wallace campaign, not to be confused with 1964 George Wallace campaign, very different kind of populism um, there. But so last week we talked about a little bit about, about uh, Joseph McCarthy. Uh, and his rise and the way in which he uh, utilized and manipulated media in order to facilitate, uh, you know, the kind of demagogic uh, fear mongering he did around the issue of communism. We need not walk through all that um, again, but I do think it's notable uh, that you know, when McCarthy was representing a party that was in the, minor the minority uh, in the Senate and attacking a Democratic president, Harry Truman, uh, he had much more leverage, and he was able to get away with uh, the kind of fact-free or untethered uh, allegations that he made uh, that made the opposing party look bad. But the kind of drive that led McCarthy to make up, to be a fabulist, to make up the information that he, he disseminated uh, to the public was not driven by politics. It was actually something driven by something much deeper. You can say one thing that McCarthy might have been a cynical practitioner of politics had he only been doing this to Democrats. But it's notable, we should remember that when the Army versus McCarthy hearings happened in 1954, this is under Eisenhower, that he began uh, making, continued to make the wild allegations about communist infiltration uh, of the federal government against his own party. 
And at that point, he begins to look like a rabid dog that that has to be put down. Uh, and so uh, he and I actually had the count of it. Uh, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, you know there are a substantial number of his fellow Republicans who vote to censure him. Uh, and so he is the recognition of the threat that he poses uh, is seen across partisan lines in 1954. Uh, and the the other point that I think I don't think I touched on uh, was that. The utility of media uh, with demagogues um, is important. So uh, one of the things that Huey Long did was that he had a immense kind of mailing campaign operation. Uh, and he also was one of the first uh, people to use flatbed trucks uh, with audio uh, to broadcast his speeches. Uh, Charles Coughlin uh, was, had become really the progenitor of modern uh, right-wing talk radio. He had about 30 million listeners per week. Just massive. That'd be an impressive number now. It's a gigantic number uh, in the comparatively smaller population. Uh, and, you know, they said he would at one point get about 10,000 letters from listeners per week. I mean, per day. So he is an incredible uh, figure in utilizing uh, this form of media. And we saw the same thing with McCarthy uh, as he was using newspapers and press to his advantage, and then to the disadvantage that he found when he was confronted by a new form of media that he didn't really understand, and that was television. Uh, that the kind of badgering, bullying behavior that he could exhibit uh, that would be uh, admirable, maybe in the boys' club of the press, did not look the same on a television screen. Uh, and he looked like a kind of drunk at the bar who had uh, too much to drink and was uh, causing too many problems. Uh, and so, and so, this doesn't work uh, in this medium. And so, when we move a little bit further uh, into the 1960s. Uh, and we see uh, George Wallace's uh, presidential campaign in 1964. You know, Wallace is uh, famously credited uh, with uh, having, after he lost his first gubernatorial bid uh, to a politician by the name of John Patterson. Uh, and, you know, Wallace had a, early on, a kind of reputation as a moderate on issues of race. There's been some debate about, you know, how significant this was, considering what the second half of his career was. Uh, and then at the very end of his life, it kind of appeared where he was trying to make amends for it uh, and saying that he uh, didn't hold uh, the views that he once held. But he said, in, 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 in order to, I guess I'll do, to do this justice, I'll say the actual quote, that he lost his first uh, statewide race because he had been, quote unquote, out-niggered uh, by John Patterson, that he would never be out-niggered again. Uh, and from this point, he makes a hard turn towards segregation. You kind of see a, maybe even a similar trajectory to what you saw uh, with Tom Watson, uh, becomes a advocate of, uh, you know, a kind of states rights position, opposing uh, the uh, federal encroachment and the imposition of integration uh, upon uh, the state of Alabama, and recognizes that there is a kind of... Uh, regional appeal uh, that might actually have legs nationally. Now, he wasn't the first person to conceive of this in 1964. Uh, of course, he's running uh, in the the wake or keenly aware of the legacy of uh, the states' rights party, states' rights party, uh, as people referred to them then, the Dixiecrats, who in 1948 uh, marched out of the Democratic Party 
in response to the uh, liberal plank on civil rights. Uh, the Democratic Party has a very weird history in the middle of the 20th century, uh, where it is both the party of Southern segregationists and Northern Black people, um, increasingly Northern Black people, which is the very least, you know, makes for awkward conventions. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> it's like, you know, we want civil rights and we want the Negro to stay in this place. Okay, all right. Like, we all know where we stand. Um, but but they have this kind of bifurcated identity, and uh, it really it really ends uh, in 1964 uh, when Lyndon B. Johnson uh, signs the Civil Rights Act. Certainly in 1965 when he signs the Voting Rights Act. Uh, but in 1948, you're at the midpoint of this, the point at which African Americans first begin voting for the Democratic Party with uh, FDR in significant numbers uh, in 1932, and then uh, by 1948. Uh, you see some tensions that manifest in uh, the Dixiecrat Party, uh, which is a regional party. Uh, it is intending, it knows that it does not have enough power or authority. Strom Thurmond is the nominee, uh, the uh, then uh, governor uh, and uh, then later senator uh, from South Carolina. Uh, the, he's the nominee, presidential nominee for the States' Rights Party in 1948. And their platform is Segregation, that is it. They're running a segregation platform. And their belief is, of course, they're not going to get uh, be able to win uh, on simply a segregation platform, but they believe that if they can uh, deny either party a majority in the electoral college and that the election is then thrown into the House of Representatives, they will be able to leverage their uh, belief in segregation to... Uh, push the federal government to back off of its commitment to civil rights. It's a very cynical strategy. Uh, and so by 1964, when we see George Wallace, he's actually attempting to take this nationally. Uh, and, you know, the Wallace campaign, uh, uh, while, you know, in, in the conventional sense, uh, being a failing political campaign, really is the closest lineage we see to Donald Trump in terms of pioneering this idea of resentment uh, and the idea that uh, whites have been uh, imposed upon uh, and that the uh, there is a, a federal government that is not only uh, acting against their interest, but is acting against their interest and on behalf of other people. People are being given uh, things. And so in some ways, we can see his fingerprints uh, in the politics of resentment that came uh, to the surface and manifest themselves uh, so clearly in Donald Trump's campaign in 2016, 2015, 2016. Uh, it's not coincidental uh, that, and you know, I'll say this, and I'm not saying there's a causal relationship between these two things. Uh, I'm simply saying that they are uh, two individuals who are responding to the same zeitgeist uh, and, and albeit in different ways, that on June 16th, uh, 2015, a, um, a young man, a 21-year-old, uh, walked into uh, the sanctuary of uh, Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, shot nine people. Uh, in the midst of it, he was asked why he was doing this, and he said he was doing it uh, because, uh, quote, unquote, you all are raping our women and taking over the world. Uh, this is what his explanation was. That was June 16th uh, of 2015. June 17th of 2015, uh, we saw Donald Trump uh, 
ride down the elevator and the gilded tower, uh, you know, that he, with his name emblazoned on it, uh, and say that he was running for president. He said that he was running for president. Uh, one of the first causes he cites is the prevalence of Mexican rapists um, who are, there's 24 hours, a uh, little over 24 hours between those two things happening. And so what happens is that we're kind of seeing the manipulation of a kind of ancient demagogic fear. You know, we see the same thing in the rhetoric of Tom Watson. Uh, we see the same thing in the rhetoric of George Wallace. We see the same thing. You kind of uh, go all the way back to Birth of a Nation and see this idea of uh, the imperiled white woman as a real fear trigger uh, and as a kind of go-to uh, for the uh, the go-to for the demagogue on the make uh, on the rise, and so where does this leave us, and what can we kind of what can we observe about this? Well, I think that unlike the other individuals uh, who were uh, kind of forestalled by the limitations of uh, their appeal, uh, and whether it be regional or the specificity of their causes or uh, the technologies or, or their individual uh, shortcomings. Uh, Donald Trump has attained far more power than any of those individuals. But I think one of the, if there's a kind of common theme to be understood here, is that demagogues are uniquely unsuited to understand their own limitations. Uh, that they typically lack a degree of self-awareness that allows them to see the kind of uh, fatal flaw that you see in mythology. They lack that uh, more often than not. Uh, and they often tend to be unable to move out of the, the mode which has facilitated them. They don't pivot and become something else. Uh, Joe McCarthy does not say in 1952 that I'm in different circumstances and so I now I need to change my political rhetoric. They do the same thing again and again and again. Uh, and then even when that thing begins to have declining returns, they continue to do it. Uh, I think that we may see uh, some sort of inflection point around this now. Uh, where Donald Trump has talked about fake news, he's talked about fake media, he's talked about the allegations of Russia being uh, fake, but his behavior of having fired the FBI director, uh, having uh, gone on a tweet storm against the former acting attorney general, uh, is the indicative of a person who is indeed very concerned. This is exactly the opposite. Uh, and so the final point that I think uh, that is noteworthy here is that this could be a kind of depressing undertaking to look at the lineage of these individuals and see that we've confronted people like this time and time again, despite the fact that even at the outset of the country, uh, the founders are recognized that a society that is anchored in the will of the people is uniquely vulnerable to people who are able to manipulate um, public passions and public sentiments and so on. But I choose to be optimistic. And the reason, the reason for that is that uh, I think that people are capable of seeing, in this case, uh, the the popular majority of people recognized uh, what was happening and uh, said that they were not in favor of it. But I think as time goes on, our institutions, our capacity for empathy, our capacity for the fundamental democratic recognition of someone else um, as our peer matters. And that the way that we respond to demagogues is never on their own terms, uh, but by affirming the kind of idea 
and the kind of ideals of our common humanity. And there's an equal lineage, and that is the lineage uh, that we see that results in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, it is the lineage that fights against the immigration hostility of the late 19th century. Uh, it is a line lineage that uh, enfranchises women. It is a lineage that fights uh, and for the interest of people who have disabilities. Uh, it is the interest that every kind of common good and every element of common humanity uh, that we hold sacred and hold valuable, if we hold it, it's because it's been maintained uh, by previous generations of people who withstood the siren song uh, and the call of uh, demagogues and to our own better at, betterment and to our uh, indebtedness to them. So thank you. I think we can stop and have some questions now. Um, you talk about demagogues not having self-awareness and that mm -hmm. prevents them from being, uh, at least in American terms, effective despots or dictators. Is there a category or, or a difference the way you differentiate some of the uh, 20th century uh, despots, you know, Mussolini, Hitler, who seem to me to have demagogic aspects mm -hmm. in, in their rhetoric and so forth? Are, are there sort of different categories that make them effective dictators where, where you're more optimistic about it? No, no. I think it's institutions, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a kind of old cliche that uh, democracy can be killed democratically. You know, people always point to the fact that Hitler was elected, uh, you know. And so... Uh, and I think people have made that comparison also when we saw uh, that the instrument of the free press was being used in ways that appear to be uh, selectively uh, um, oriented toward leading a political outcome of one person over another by a regime that's not democratic, you know, that being Russia. Uh, and so I don't think that um, there was something unique about those individuals. Uh, I think this is purely a matter of um, the institutional strength uh, and people's commitment to democracy. Now, in this country, I don't think that there's any cause for a kind of uh, celebratory arrogance. You know, uh, you know, as I pointed out uh, a few weeks ago in the New Yorker, that you know, in 1935, when Sinclair Lewis uh, wrote, you know, the novel "It Can't Happen Here." Um, it already was happening here and had been happening since the end of Reconstruction. Um, and so the kind of appeal of demagogues, at one point, you know, it would have been common, um, you know, you could get majority opinion in many places saying that segregation was perfectly fine uh, or that people who were lynched, you know, probably did something to deserve it. Uh, and, you know, we have had the a long lineage of anti-democratic practices in this country. But we haven't had it that looked in the kind of authoritarian way, the kind of modern industrial uh, authoritarianism uh, that we saw with fascism uh, in the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, and I think that, you know, there are, um, one, I think that one of the things that, that Donald Trump exposed if I can you know, bear with me for a second with an analogy, is that, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali was a, a great athlete, right? I mean, it's not, not a controversial statement. Um, he was a great boxer. Uh, but one thing about Muhammad Ali was that he could never get out of the way of a left hook. 
um, which is why those fights with uh, Joe Frazier were so compelling because Joe Frazier paid his rent with his left hand. Um, and so even early in his career, when he fought a kind of otherwise not notable fighter by the name of Henry Cooper, uh, he hit Muhammad Ali with a left hook and knocked him down. First time he'd ever been knocked down in his career and never in his never got better about defending himself from the left hook. Uh, despite he had these the fact that he had these formidable talents, probably unparalleled talents in other ways. I think that's an a, a apt analogy for what happened in 2016, that there's a great deal, probably unparalleled strength uh, of democratic institutions. But what Donald Trump did in 2016 exposed a left hook weakness, um, that it is possible to cobble together an electoral majority uh, in a way that we had not seen uh, coming before. And so where that goes, I don't know. I don't, I'm not in the business of making predictions, but I don't think that the particulars of those characters uh, were different. I think that the context in which they existed, in which they operated, uh, were more different than anything else. Thank, thanks very much. Great presentation. Um, and just to add a gloss to what you just said about Muhammad Ali, the other underappreciated thing about him is he could take a lot of punishment and still win a fight. So I hope that feeds into your optimism. <laughs> right. And the, the, my question, though, is this. Um, you pointed out that television um, put uh, McCarthy at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly, you know, I mean, Donald Trump with his hectoring and bullying and limited vocabulary seems just as rhetorically challenged mm -hmm. as McCarthy was. And yet television and that kind of exposure hasn't yet put him at a disadvantage, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could imagine in the current political landscape or climate a sort of a Joseph Welch moment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, for Donald Trump and whether mm -hmm. there's any pulse point that could somehow be hit by some some opponent of Trump's that some that catches a sufficient number of people mm -hmm. to turn even seemingly unamenable Republicans against him. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and you know, the kind of Joe Balch, you know, uh, have you no decency uh, moment that that exposes McCarthy. One of the other things about Joe Welch, uh, by the way, and and the Army versus McCarthy hearings is that Welch was funny. Um, and if you kind of watch those hearings, uh, you know, you see, like, he doesn't really know what to do with him. McCarthy doesn't know what to do with him because, uh, one, Welch is not afraid of him. Uh, and two, he's kind of ridiculing him. And it's the thing that, uh, you know, personalities like that cannot tolerate. Uh, and so I think that Trump, as thin-skinned as he is, I mean, he ran for president because of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Uh, I think that he's vulnerable in that same way. Uh, and the way that bullies always are, I think. Um, and so I think that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is that he has this kind of gloss, this patina of um, alpha male certainty and surety and certainness and, you know, um, authority. And that if there's ever anything that strips him of that, that makes him uh, appear fallible um, and appear unsure of himself, uh, like the... Uh, wailing small newborn child inside him that we all you know know. Um, I think that makes him particularly uh, vulnerable as well. Uh, I have a kind of linked two part question. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the first part is that if you look back, well, first of all about Trump, uh, you have 
understandably emphasized the racist appeal uh, that he uh, advanced in the campaign. But at the same time, I think, I wonder if you would, I think you would acknowledge, but mm -hmm. I'll ask this question, uh, that there, he struck a number of other themes mm -hmm. that were highly appealing, particularly on e e the economy, jobs, uh, his contempt for global warming, his contempt for Eastern elites. Uh, so I wonder whether uh, that you can see that there are, you know, legitimate grievances that Trump appealed to that are not racist. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that perhaps o Obama made a mistake or didn't see them, uh, mm -hmm. so that they festered sufficiently for Trump to find to, to make a place for Trump. And secondly, uh, the, the, the then what we do? How do we respond to? Shouldn't we respond to Trump beyond? The racist appeal. Mm -hmm. So uh, here's the thing I think about Donald Trump and this issue of race and racism. Like he led with racism. Like he didn't. Uh, the best, the best case scenario. I think there are lots of things that are, in, that are involved in there. But the active ingredient and the plurality of it in it is a kind of racial resentment. And that's just my opinion. Some people have kind of surveyed and found that the most determinative factor. Uh, it wasn't tied to people's economic fortunes. We know that uh, Trump voters had higher household incomes than Hillary Clinton's voters were. Uh, and it wasn't tied to, uh, you know, many of these other themes that we've seen of the kind of hard scrabble, Midwestern, Rust Belt town. Uh, that wasn't indicative. That wasn't a kind of clear indicator of who would vote for Trump. It was a kind of resentment index that more than anything else pointed to. Um, you know, how people came to rationalize voting for Trump. The first thing he said was that there were Mexican rapists. Um, and so I think that there's a thing, there is a there there. Now, I don't think that's the entirety of it. Now, as it relates to the, uh, the economic agendas of the other demagogues, it depends on what we're, who we're talking about. Um, you know, Huey Long, uh, is different than, than George Wallace, even though they're both, you know, kind of Southern populist figures. Uh, and, you know, George Wallace is different than, you know, Tom Watson. Now, what they do have in common is when we look at how, uh, you know, uh, these social safety net programs were actually administered, they were administered in ways that were pretty racially disparate. And that's not unintentional, like, you know, Social Security, which you just mentioned. Uh, there's a reason that uh, Roosevelt's administration cuts out uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers from protection of Social Security. Those are the two areas where black people are clustered. And that's not going to fly with Southern Democrats, will not fly with them. Um, same thing with the GI Bill. Uh, and so when they kind of make the GI Bill as block grants to states, they know implicitly that these are not going to be paying to send Negroes to college, uh, that those states are going to administer those funds very differently than they would have been if they were handled in federally. And so uh, I think that it's simplistic to say that Trump um, was elected because, solely because of racism. I think it's naive to say that racism wasn't the active ingredient in what... Uh, Oh yeah, there's certainly there are other things. Um, I'm not, but I'm not saying that that's your argument, right? But I'm not saying that's your, your argument. But I'm saying that we wind up saying that uh, this guy has a white supremacist as high as his chief advisor. Um, and the other thing I thought about this was also like a kind of other resentment that we didn't talk very much about, but uh, but gender. When I went to um, you know the Trump rally, I went to in North Carolina. I mean. <laughs> It was so sexist. I mean, it was so misogynistic. Like, 
you'd be in some place, like rappers would be like, damn, this is wrong. You know? Um, it, it, it was so over the top that I was like, this is not about money. This is about something else. Like, like there would be no justification for talking about Hillary Clinton as a woman in the way that she was being talked about, you know, in these crowds. So I was like, there's a cultural element here that people are trying to reclaim something that they think has been taken away from them. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, the kind of deference to male authority and all of those things. Um, so I think it's, it's all of those, those kind of elements that are tied to it. Uh, and it wound up being a winning formula for him. Question from me. So I don't want you to be crystal gazing into the future, but conceptually to confront a demagogue, would you expect that what kind of personality do you expect would succeed four years down the line or going forward uh, in general? Um, to confront a demagogue? Yeah, to successfully um, go against somebody like Trump. Uh, I think the thing that um, the gentleman uh, just uh, to your left uh, pointed out about Joseph Welch, uh, it requires, to use another boxing analogy, um, you know, Mike Tyson never beat anybody who wasn't afraid of him you know, as a, as a boxer. I think it requires a particular kind of fearlessness um, that at the very least, that's the starting point of it. Uh, and I think that when we're talking about, for me as somebody who works in media, we've had this conversation again and again about uh, how people approach the Trump presidency. And I think it has to be by rigorously maintaining your standards and your ideas uh, that you fearlessly advocate for the truth and that there are, are objective facts and that there are there is actual reality and that we are existing within it um, and moving from there. And, and so I think the first quality would have to be fearlessness and probably, uh, you know, demagogues tend not to do well with people who are equally charismatic. Uh, and so, I mean, there are lots of instances. I actually thought that uh, the, the debates um, with Hillary Clinton uh, and the first debate where, where Trump lost, I thought it was very um, telling. I expected him to lose all three. Statistically, he did lose all three, but he didn't lose them as badly as I anticipated uh, because I didn't expect him to be able to stand uh, and be questioned by a woman for two hours without blowing a gasket. Um, I thought that was going to happen. He actually managed to kind of hold it together, even though you kind of seemed frayed at some points. Uh, but I think that that's the first quality. It has to be someone who is fearless. Mm -hmm. uh, thinking of Father Coughlin in that geographic area, would you consider Henry Ford a demagogue? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think of Henry Ford as a kind of uh, anti-Semite racist, but he didn't have the public appeal part of it. Um, <laughs> it was like it was like the person they were referring to someone um, uh, saying that he would be a demagogue if only he could be more popular. <laughs> you know, but only if only people liked him more. Uh, you know. Um, and so I think that Ford's anti-Semitism uh, and, you know, which he shared uh, kind of widely uh, and uh, you would say Charles Lindbergh in that same category, um, you know, someone uh, we have people who hold these ideas, who have these kind of um, these hostilities or these bigotries or these biases. Uh, and but I think that it's the promulgation of it in a particular kind of way. Uh, and also the kind of cult of personality element of it that turns that person into an actual demagogue. Uh, and not saying that it wasn't dangerous. Um, you know, lots of things are dangerous about it. I, mean, I think there's a difference between uh, somebody who thinks something loopy or, you know, somebody who has an actual following. You know, I, 
include uh, Louis Farrakhan in that, you know, someone who could get an audience of a million people uh, on the Capitol, whenever that was 20 years ago, uh, is very different than someone who just kind of thinks something crazy. Uh, and uh, or they can write something and publish it and promote it. But I think it's a very different kind of standing position. Uh, good evening. Um, one of the thought processes uh, that crossed my mind um, during your presentation this evening and something I uh, perhaps you brought it up at your previous lecture, but it was not uh, discussed here with respect to uh, demagogues in this era. Um, you, a, a number of things are not present. So for example, now uh, the gatekeeping function of, of mass media mm -hmm. isn't as, 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 as prevalent as it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, demagogues previously uh, used traditional methods uh, by which uh, to communicate with their audiences um, that is no longer present. There is absolutely no filter now. We live in an age where uh, essentially um, that demagogue can communicate directly uh, to mm -hmm. the masses, um, which is what uh, Trump uh, is able to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, on top of that, contributing to that as well uh, is the segmentation of, of various audiences. So when you uh, express optimism about uh, how again, we would be able to confront um, a, a demagogue, for example, like Mr. Trump or others who are existing in an age where we have seen the evolution of media mm -hmm. um, to a place where now everyone is also speaking within or existing within their own echo chambers mm -hmm. so that no one is essentially listening to the other side anymore as would have existed in the past. There is no need to do that because of how uh, media has evolved to a place where, for example, now uh, someone can essentially uh, discredit uh, reputable news organizations. Of course, they, they are problematic as well, but they can certainly, uh, again, question the objectivity of these new news organizations um, through their own echo chambers. Mm -hmm. And um, that is so, one of the dangers, right. I think, in this era that didn't exist then mm -hmm. and um, so essentially, one has I think one has to rethink. So, what's uh, your question? Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> yes. So, sorry. So, the my my question is: Are you really optimistic? Mm -hmm. Are you really optimistic that uh, in this era, considering the, the, what I've just outlined, whether or not that uh, a demagogues can in fact mm -hmm. be challenged? Yeah, I do. I am uh, because one of the things that's kind of notable is that, uh, sure, he has like this huge following, uh, but I think that, you know, it's not impossible. I also think that there's some people who are never going to hear anything other than what they want to hear. Right. Um, and that's true. Like we know that. Uh, but I, I don't think that that is the majority of the population. I don't think that's, a, I think that's a very significant sliver um, of the populace. But I also think that there are uh, things to which he's not immune. Like he's not immune to embarrassment. Um, he's not immune to ridicule. Uh, he's not immune to uh, kind of being confronted in public forums. Uh, he also increasingly may not be immune as 2018 uh, rolls forward to the political calculations of their own party. Uh, in 1954, when people were looking at Joseph McCarthy, they were thinking about the future of the Republican uh, Party and that he became expensive uh, to them, more expensive than they wanted to maintain. Uh, when we're looking at uh, the inability and the inexperience 
um, politically, legislatively, and in terms of policy, and what that might look like, um, there are actual kind of calculations where you say this person has become more expensive than is useful. Um, that may happen quickly, may not happen quickly. Uh, but I don't think that uh, we're at a point where we can simply say, it is what it is. We can throw up our hands and say that there is like no utility uh, in this uh, whatsoever. Uh, for what it stands, for what it matters, I think that all these individuals looked as formidable at their point um, until they actually weren't. They looked infallible until they, until they weren't anymore. Now, we're in complete agreement that this is of a scale. I've actually said this in the talk. This is of a scale that we haven't seen before. Um, but I also think that because it's high stakes, there can also be really high losses. Uh, and if I don't believe that, then there's no use in fighting or writing or doing anything uh, or even getting out of bed in the morning. Thank you, sir. All right. Again, that was Jelani Cobb with The Demagogues of American History, part two of his lecture, The Half-Life of Freedom. As always, we're grateful to you for listening to this show. And if you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Next week, New Yorker staff writer David Gran on his book, Killers of the Flower Moon, which he worked on here during his time as a fellow at the library's Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers.